I'm Chaz Elliott, and you're listening to Talking Blues. Today is gig day. You're playing American Paris tonight? Yes, yeah. What's the routine like? Like, here you are, it's one o'clock, you're performing at eight o'clock tonight. Mm-hmm. On a regular day, what would what happens to you before you do a show? Well, it's, it's odd because it's always there in the back of your mind. So um, you get to a point in the day where you can't start anything new, you're almost killing time. I enjoy having an afternoon siesta just to, just to be fresh for the show. Right. I always find it amazing um, what kind of rehearsals goes into a, a show for an orchestra. And I, I, I think it should be more. It's not. Yeah. So in, in the case of this particular performance, how many days of performance, how many days of practice have you used? Uh, we've had, uh, well, there were, there were two different programs happening, uh, not at the same time, but there was a, a smaller piece of the orchestra doing the Vivaldi Four Seasons. So in the case of the basses, we have seven basses, but they only use two for the Four Seasons. Okay. How do they get selected? Well, um, uh, the hierarchy within uh, within any of the sections, but in the bass section, there's a principal player, and then there's an assistant or an associate, and then there's the section players. Okay. So uh, our principal right now is is uh, on sabbatical. He comes back the middle of January. He's been off uh, since last June. And so the uh, assistant was playing principal, and then we, the rest of the section would just rotate up to sit on the first stand. Wow, uh, okay. So, yeah. I mean, rehearsal, beyond the rehearsal that you do before the performance with either the featured artist, mm. in this case it's John Kimura Parker. Yes, yeah. Um, how much rehearsal goes happens by yourself before that? Well, we we have our schedule for the whole year so we can look ahead and we can see what what requires uh, additional work uh for this program the first half uh there were some really tricky moments in it so so one has to practice on their own we we can get the music uh, i think a couple of months prior to the show and and so we take a look at it we can listen to it see see what has to be done but for the second half we're doing American in Paris we've we hardly need the music and and uh, we're doing uh, the overture to Candide Bernstein that's uh, well certainly I've played it we did we did Candide uh, in the Canadian Opera Company right. uh, so we did a run of that so don't really need the music for that but, but, I mean how many years ago was that that could have been many many years ago uh, true enough, but it's 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 there. <laughs> really? Like, yeah. So yeah. if you haven't played it for ten, twenty years, you can still. You, you, it's not that difficult for you to. Well, um, note wise, Candide's not that difficult. Uh, one doesn't have to count the bars if you're doing something like, uh, say, a modern piece that you've never played before, right. and you and you have to woodshed. You have to really look at it and it's very difficult then you're 
then you're really working at it. But if you're playing a Beethoven symphony or Brahms or Mozart or Strauss or any anything like that, you can. Do you have a favorite piece? Well, I'm a I'm a great fan of Richard Strauss. He's uh, uh, the man for me. Right. Okay. Yeah. When I uh, I'm 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 great friends with Sir Andrew Davis. Uh, we we go back a long way, and I've told him many times that when it's time for me to uh, walk away from playing the bass, I want it that he's conducting a Richard Strauss tone poem, maybe held in Laban or Don Juan or something like that. And after after the performance, I'll just put the bass down and walk away. <laughs> um. How does the program get determined? Is it because that's the you know you have many guest conductors who come in? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't even know if they have a say in this or if this is there's a program that says we want to do a couple of Beethovens and we want to do this. Mm-hmm. How does that get? Well, the uh, the artistic administrator in the TS I think goes down to New York and uh, goes to the um, the agencies like. Columbia artists, and when they're booking the seasons, the seasons are done, are put down years in advance. And uh, as far as the guest artists, uh, they will probably choose uh, two or three concertos that they'll want to do in a particular year, and then they'll rotate between those three, or say, and and that's all that they'll do. Right. Yeah. But... uh, Conductors will choose uh, something that they want, and uh, I guess they conductors will have a roster of things that they want to conduct. So last night I was at the uh, Royal Conservatory of Music watching the RCO Orchestra. Yeah. And what I noticed, because I knew I was going to interview you today, so I was watching the bass bass section. But what I noticed is that you know they're very focused on looking at the the sheet music, mm-hmm. and they don't really look at the conductor, or it doesn't seem like they do. Yeah. Tell me about your relationship to the conductor when you're playing. Well, um, uh, one well, I can only speak for myself. Mm-hmm. I always sit where, even though uh, I might not look at the conductor that much. He or she is always in my peripheral vision. So um, I always try to look at the conductor when I need something from the conductor. But if the conductor's not providing that, then we just keep our heads down and forge ahead. And can you explain what that need might be? Well, uh, clarity in the beat, a musical approach which which we jointly the orchestra and the conductor have come to an understanding that this is what we would like to do or what the conductor would like to do um, if it's a conductor that we really like and really res- respect we'll we'll uh, follow them not that we're we're uh, we won't follow a conductor <laughs> Right. But but sometimes the the conductor gets in the way. That that the conductor is doing something that if you're playing something and it's reasonably complicated and you look up and you and you think to yourself, well, what's that? What what's happening? Then then you just have to you just have to forge ahead. But as you said, 
like tonight's rehear- tonight's performance you maybe rehearsed twice with the full orchestra uh, actually, you know, we we uh, had about four rehearsals. Okay. Uh, the first two pieces w- required a lot of work. The uh, second half was played by itself. And that's basically the lot of work is defined, not defined, but explained by what the conductor wants. I mean, in the first couple of rehearsals, he would say a lot more than maybe in the last couple of rehearsals. Right, right. Well... Uh, for this performance, uh, um, Leonard Slatkin is a is a terrific musician, and uh, we always enjoy uh, having him here. Um, his conducting beat is is very fluid, uh, which is great. But sometimes, uh, if we're switching between four four and three four or five eight and three eight and all that, and some of the middle beats are are not as clear as they could be, so um, and that's that's just him, mm-hmm. and that's fine. But we but we have to see what he's doing, right? So, like for somebody like me who who has very limited knowledge of music and even less knowledge of classical music, it all sounds great to me. But I, um, I, it's hard for me to, to understand how different a piece of music can be under different conductors. Does it surprise you in, in the way that it can be interpreted much, quite differently? I'm not surprised because uh, there have been times where... where um, well, it's, it's not too often that we'll play one piece... Uh, in close proximity to playing it again with a different conductor. So, um, but if there's a really good conductor in and we have a terrific concert, and then the next day, if it's not a very good conductor, all of a sudden the orchestra sounds like a student orchestra because we don't, because it's just it's just not happening. It's right. uh, yeah. Because that's the other thing is when when you have. 80, 90, 100 people on stage. Yeah. Like it's, I presume, like a, a huge ship that he has to steer, right? So. Yeah. yeah. Well, it, it, it's, it's, um, I've, I've thought about this quite a bit and I don't have a, the whole relationship of the conductor to the orchestra. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's strange. <laughs> That surprises me. <laughs> yeah, well, well, when it's a great conductor, it it, uh, it just it just all seems to make sense. But if there's a if there's a young conductor and they don't have the experience, and then I always find that if that if somebody doesn't have anything to say musically, they just play it fast, and then and then the the impact of it playing fast, everybody goes, oh, that's fantastic. But really, musically, nothing's been said. It's just getting through it, and it's the wow factor and all that. But okay, so I recently did some work with uh, St. Martin and the Field Ensemble, the Chamber Ensemble, not the yeah. full orchestra. And in the Chamber Ensemble, there is no conductor, and I, I think there sometimes during the the orchestra, they might not be an uh, conductor, and they talked about the freedom mm-hmm. of playing without um, a conductor. Explain, like, do you find, do you ever get the opportunity to actually play without a conductor? Um, rarely, 
Um, but for but for chamber music musicians, yeah. uh, string quartets and things like that, they they it's a um, it's a collaborative um, effort, and they and they uh, talk about how they want to approach a Beethoven string quartet or something, and and uh, that's the that's the kind of thing that one does. Right. And and uh, Peter Ungen, who was our last music director, he used to be the uh, first violinist of the Tokyo String Quartet, and and he brought that that collaborative music making approach that is uh, that pertains to um, string quartet playing chamber music, brought it to the orchestra, which was which was fine to a point, but. Uh, when there's a hundred people on stage, uh, there can't be that much dialogue. Right. Yeah. And when it gets there, where where there's many music directors on stage, there can only be one conductor, and and they lay down how they want to do it. So you've been with the orchestra since '89. Is that correct? Yeah. Thirty. I've I've been there officially 31 years. Okay. So. How has your playing changed in that 31 years? My playing? Yeah. Um, well, it, um, let me think about that. Well, I was definitely at the top of my game when I joined the orchestra. Uh, Sorry, explain that. What does that mean? Well, um, prior to to being in the orchestra, I was I was the principal bass in the Canadian Opera and the National Ballet, and mainly Mozart. And there was a huge recording scene here, right. a lot of feature films, and so that uh, and jingles and record dates and all that stuff. So that's what I did, and I also played with the TS. TSO for many years during the summer when they were at the Forum in Ontario Place and, and all that and went on tours before I actually was asked to join oh, the okay. orchestra. So um, so being a, being a freelancer, your um, level of expertise is, I think, at its highest because you have to be ready for anything you're practicing all the time. Um, I don't practice now anywhere near how I used to, but then I have all of those years of experience, and I think what I can offer at this point is just my experience and just being able to sit there in the section and lay it down. So when you first started, it wasn't a, not I'm going to say that wasn't a big deal, but you had been there before, you had played with them before, so it wasn't this brand new thing. Yeah. Well, they did. They did something very nice. They added a ninth bass, and they invited me to join the orchestra. No audition. So, um, th- uh, myself and and two other people were the last three to uh, be asked to join the orchestra without playing at an audition. Mind you, my audition was ten years. Right. Because you had played with them before. Yeah, yeah. And uh, they used to have a clause in the master agreement that if the the audition committee was unanimous about wanting to bring somebody in and the music director, who at the time was Andrew, Andrew Davis, and if they said fine, then this is who they want. And uh, the audition process is terrible. It's a, 
out of body experience. It's <laughs> so you've gone through this many times, um, a fair amount, and and uh, yeah, it's it's bad. <laughs> <laughs> but in some ways, because I'm used to in classical music, I'm used to uh, we've done some work with the BAM string quartet competition. Yeah. So we know about competitions, and, yeah. and I, I expect that it's it's different than an audition. But in the same, in a, in a way, it is this this judging thing. Right, right. Well, the audition is is uh, well. First of all, the preliminary rounds are behind a screen, so they don't know who's there, oh. and they uh, put that in place so that they couldn't tell gender or anything right and uh and so that uh, that in itself is odd uh, um one has a list of things that they are required to play if asked to play and uh y- you can either play it or you can't and are you playing it with sheet music yes you can have yeah yeah <laughs> One of the, um, uh, I used to play in this band, Pork Belly Futures, mm-hmm. and the one of the hardest things that I had to get my head around is that um, the other guys in the band they didn't require sheet music because that's that's their milieu to play in, and and things like verses and choruses and intros and bridges and. That didn't mean anything because we just read it off of the music. And I and I had to laugh once when we were playing somewhere, and if this is in the early days mm-hmm. that that I that I had to write out the songs because I just couldn't remember the changes. And somebody came up to me and said, "Why are you reading music?" And I I I didn't know what to say, and I, I was probably thought I was an idiot. I said, "Well, I read it because I can." <laughs> I, I do find it interesting, and it's come up a few times in, in my conversations on this podcast. But the discipline between being able to just read a, sh- read a piece of music off paper and to be able to execute it perfectly or close to perfection yeah. the first time around um, versus the ability to improvise. And I know that there's more to it than just those two, but I know that there's a huge difference between the two. So. Am I correct to assume that you never got to the... Your improvisational skills are lesser than your reading skills? Oh, well, um, yes. You're right. Uh, being, a, being a classical musician, you don't... You aren't required to be able to memorize things. Right. But, but, if you're, but if you're practicing, if, if, you're, if you're playing a concerto or something like that, you, you know it well enough to not have to look at the music. But... Um, uh, Many times when I was uh, meeting people uh, and I was in Pork Belly Futures and I would be talking to musicians and somehow in the conversation someone would say, oh, well, he plays in the Toronto Symphony. And all of a sudden the whole feeling of the conversation (laughs) changed because all of a sudden, oh, you're in the Toronto Symphony. Uh, we are not worthy. And and one time I was I was talking to somebody, a, uh, an excellent musician and songwriter, and I said, you know, all that all that I really am is a low frequency signal generator 
with a <laughs> digital interface, but you create something from from nothing, and I I can't I can't do that. I wouldn't know where to start. So in the time that you played with the Pork Belly Futures, yeah, was it always written out? Like, did you ever get to the point where it wasn't? You didn't have to look at the sheet music and. Yes, and I and and that for me was a huge accomplishment. <laughs> I thought that was great, and 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 I uh, I just well uh, right at the start I I uh, had to write it up because I just couldn't remember the changes, and then and then it was just sort of more like a safety net a right. bit, and then and then I didn't have to at all. And so at that point, were you able to improvise and go to different places? Well, the, the song structures weren't like that. Uh, these were, these were straight-ahead songs, yeah, yeah. and, and uh, I, could, I could fool around with the bass part a little bit, but, but uh, uh, it, it certainly wasn't like it was wide open. Well, yes, it was wide open, but, but, uh, but uh, I never did it. It just... Yeah, so I'm curious as to what made you decide to join that band, and how that came about. Because obviously, it would have been out of your comfort zone a little bit. Right. Well, I I I I played the electric bass since I was in grade six or seven, and and I I always listened to all the Motown stuff, and uh, I didn't know who the bass player was, and. Certainly now I do, James mm-hmm. Jamerson, and and um, and I'd be listening to all this great stuff, and and then I thinking, wow. But then when it comes to comes to a point of, well, that's a great baseline, and now it's your turn to make a, up a great baseline. Oh, oh, I'm in trouble. You know, <laughs> you mean there actually is a relationship between what the drums do and what you do, and the bass drum and and all this stuff, and 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 it was fantastic. You know, to go down that road. I can imagine. So you come from, a, your family has a classical music background. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about your parents. Well, my father um, was a wonderful musician. Uh, he, he, um, uh, he was an organist and piano player. And uh, he had some great church jobs here, York Mr. Park Baptist and St. Andrew's Presbyterian and all that stuff. And, and uh, uh, so, yeah, he was a great player and a great improviser. And um, he used to have music writing competitions with Healy Willen, where they would write out a two-part fugue, on your mark, get set, go, and... <laughs> Go like that, yeah. So, but then, um, he was also a uh, painter, and the music was up here, and the painting was down, down below, and it just switched places. So he he didn't do a lot of music uh, in in later years, and he was just painting all the time. Do you remember when that switch happened? Because I can imagine that that's quite a big switch from going from musician to painter. Well, he was always a musician, right. uh, uh, but but 
uh, I think that he had more artistic freedom to be to be a painter, and and uh, he was very well received in the the art community, and had dealers all over the place, and uh, we would go away for the whole summer and go somewhere with Tom Roberts or Adrian Dingle or really yeah. And just, I mean, they were like family does. It was Uncle Adrian. So this is like a an offshoot of, like, not an offshoot, but it's similar to a group of seven when they're working yeah. together in a group. Yeah, yeah. We would spend our summers down in Gloucester, Massachusetts, and, and uh, the the families would come and we would camp in a in the in the same campsite they reserved the they built platforms for us and because we would be there for the whole summer and the the uh, men would be off painting and then the then the wives and all the kids would go to the beach do you paint i i have painted but uh no (laughs) (laughs) did he did your dad also teach at the conservatory yeah he taught at the conservatory and all that stuff and and uh, in fact, when I was at U of T for the first year, that, that uh, I didn't I didn't really care about the courses. I was there to study with Tom Monahan, and uh, but when I was in keyboard harmony class or or something like that, oh, they go, oh, you're Doug Elliott's son. Well, you can do this. You, I go, no, I can't do this. I can't do any of this stuff. <laughs> Your mom was a singer. She was an opera singer. She was um, after the war. They were both in. They were both in the service. They came back, and and uh, mum was uh, in the original Festival Singers with Elmer Eisler, and she was. Uh, she did this TV show called the the Carl Tapscott Singers or something. So she was she was very active for a long time. But then then it just uh, my sister and I came along and and dad was doing very well with the painting and stuff like that and so she gave up the singing she sang sang a little bit uh while we were growing up but most of her stuff was done i don't know if you can answer this but how much that influenced you becoming a musician your your, your parents being both very artistic and yeah well there was there was certainly music in the house all the time they were always there playing practicing um there were pieces of music that were always on the turntable like the Mazorsky pictures at an exhibition Strauss Don Juan Le Maire Scheherazade those those four things so when I play those pieces now in the orchestra I I don't even have to look at the music I don't have to count bars they're they're just part of my DNA wow yeah Pictures and Exhibition is such a beautiful piece. Pictures and Exhibition. Oh, oh yeah, it's great. It's great. We, yeah. we actually shot somebody playing the piano version of a couple of pieces, and it just floored yeah. me. And and my exposure to that was from Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, I had to, and I had to go out and buy that album again because I was yeah. so yeah. impressed by the playing. Um, music was always around you, but when did it really connect with you? Or was there such a moment? Well, I, I, uh, um, yes, I think that, uh, seeing that I played the electric bass, 
when I went to Hodson in grade seven, everybody in, in my class had to choose an instrument to play. And they went through everybody and they all picked their instruments and it got that I was the only one left and the only instrument left was the double bass. <laughs> so I said, well, okay, it's the, it's the same thing. The same four strings. One has frets, one doesn't. And so I said, sure. And then I started to take lessons. They had itinerant teacher come through. So you had the electric bass before the double bass? Way before. Okay. Yeah. And what, what was it about the bass that connected with you? Oh, I don't know. It's the, it's the soul of the song. It's the, it's the rooting. It's something yeah, I, I just always, always wanted to play the bass. And back then, everything that I did had to do something, had to do with playing the bass. Okay. Uh, and uh, uh, obviously, playing the double bass worked out. But tell me about that process of learning the double bass. Well, I, I, uh, uh, I was very fortunate when I uh, went to Northern. The string teacher there used to play double bass in the TSO and he and I hit it off big time and he was a fantastic guy uh, really good player Buddy Wisniewski and uh, he took me when I was in grade 9 down to hear a concert of by Gary Carr the double bass virtuoso he, who was playing down in St. Catherine so he we went down there. I I just never heard anything like it, uh, so so that was great. And I and I said uh, one day, may I take lessons from you? And he said, No. The person you should take lessons from is Tom Monahan. He's the principal bass in the TS. So my dad phoned him up, and we went down, and I was terrified. <laughs> Sorry, when by the time you decided that you wouldn't. You wanted to take lessons from him. Yeah. Did you think that bass was in your future? Well, I I certainly hope. Yeah, I I hoped that it would be. Um, it's um, it's that time where there's that dream that you want to do that. I I couldn't see myself doing anything else. And doing that meant playing in an orchestra. Yes. Yeah. Because. Uh, um, the bass is not really a solo instrument. Um, people do play solos on it, and there are some great players. And, and um, during my time, I've had to play concertos and solos and stuff like that. And when you're a principal player, if there's any bass solos to be played, you're the one that has to do it. So you have to learn them all and and, and all that. But... Uh, no, playing in an orchestra, and I guess playing in the Toronto Symphony would would, uh, would be the th place to go. So, when you went to school, was it a school orchestra? Did you play in the school orchestra? Yes. Was yeah. it a band or an orchestra? Uh, string orchestra and regular orchestra. So, at that point, you knew this is really what, I want, what you wanted to do? Well, I... Uh, yes. And... and uh, well, I was practicing all the time, and, and uh, uh, I used to go to school every day, but I 
never went to class. I just went to the music room and practiced. In fact, the, the school even phoned home and said, we haven't seen Charles for a long time. And they said, well, where have you been? I said, well, I've, I've been going to school. But I would just go into the music room, and there was a little practice room, and I would, I would, I would practice all day. And one of the things that I learned from my parents was how to practice. Uh, uh, can, can you describe that? What does that mean? Well, um, practicing, what you don't want to do is practice your mistakes. So if there's a problem, to figure out what, what the problem is and and then fix that problem, whether it's uh, a fingering problem, a bowing problem, uh, lots of times uh, people don't zero in on what the issue is mm -hmm. but and, did they even know that it's a mistake well if it's if it's out of tune or it's out of time what you're doing to make it out of tune or out of time or so you have to figure out is the is the shift too far is it is it uh, is it a bowing change thing so so I learned that from my parents right and and I presume you were pretty well obsessed with the instrument oh yeah i, I just uh, yeah i i just yeah <laughs> yes and and um yeah so i started taking lessons and and uh and then uh, i studied with franco petracchi over in italy i got a canada council grant to go over there so i went over there for a summer and he was a great player uh and learned a lot and and the things that I learned learned from him I still do every day when I warm up and uh, then I took lessons with uh, one of the guys who used to be in the NBC orchestra with Toscanini and he was in the Chicago Symphony so I'd drive down to Chicago every six weeks and have a lesson with this guy. And did you have a sense of what it would be like to be a player in an orchestra at this point? Um, well, at, at, at that point where, when I was studying with those guys, I was in the orchestra. Um, I was in, the, I was principal in the Hamilton Phil okay. and, uh, playing the opera and the ballet and, and, uh, yeah, so. Is there any difference in terms of the way you would play? And this might be a, a silly question, but between the way you would play in the Toronto Symphony or the Hamilton Symphony versus the National Ballet or um, the Opera Company? Uh, well, there's there's different styles of playing and different... Uh, it, you play differently if there's a mic six inches from your bridge. So if you're... Um, when we played in the opera, or played in the opera and the ballet, we were still at the O'Keefe, and so the acoustics were nothing to write home about and so we were all mic'd and things like oh. that so so you wouldn't have to project your sound that much you only had to get it to the mic whereas when you're on stage um, you uh, supposedly are playing to the back row so at this around this time you became this freelance player who is somewhat in demand in recording sessions how did that happen how do you get recording gigs and TV gigs? I think it was just that that there were the first call players who were usually the, the people in the TS. Mm -hmm. But then as the 
TS got busier and uh, there were more sessions than they then they had to go outside so then they went to uh, players in the opera and the ballet and so I was there and you just you just got known and my nickname was the guy that can't say no so <laughs> So, so if you get phoned, first of all, you would get perhaps phoned for a jingle the night before the 10 o'clock jingle in the morning. And that would be because they, they did it at the last minute. The TSO guys couldn't do it. Anybody else who was in the chain couldn't do it. And then they'd, they'd go, well, let's try this new guy. And is this a producer or is this an ad agency? Um, Who's calling uh, you? There were contractors who who uh, uh, would hire people, and uh, it would be their job to to uh, put together whatever it was that was required. And so, how differently would you treat those gigs versus recording gigs? Because he's also done a lot of freelance recording gigs. Yeah. Well, uh, um, I loved recording it uh, just to walk in, read it through once, just to make sure that all the notes were right, Mm -hmm. and and then and then they would record it, and then you'd go on to the next thing, and 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 it was very exciting. I loved it. Yeah, you could just look at a piece of paper, look, read it. Are you actually playing it, or are you in your mind you're reading it through? Well, you're looking at it to to think whether you can play it, but um, most of the time uh, there were no problems. But you but you had to be able to play whatever was there. So most times in a string session, it just might be string pads underneath. But the odd time you go in there and it's a bass concerto, and you uh, and you have to be able to play it. And uh, wow! So uh, I think that I can I can read music better than I can read words. <laughs> okay, so if we go back to your first orchestra, that would have been the Hamilton. Yes. Okay, so yeah. that would have been an audition. Yeah, I, I uh, played an audition for that with uh, Boris brought well. I well, I played in the Hamilton Philharmonic in the section, and then when the then principal joined the TSO, then the, the chair was open, and so so I played the audition and won that audition. And did you know when you first started and and studying with all these great bassists that what the route was to get to that goal that you had hoped to achieve? Yes, there. Um, yes, studying with Tom Monahan. At one point, all of the bass players in the Toronto Symphony bass section were his pupils. So, so if you wanted to get in there, then you pretty well had to study with him. Mm-hmm. Which was a which was a very unique situation because we all played the same way. We all had the same concept of producing sound, and th- th- that was terrific. There were no, if if you played German bow, then you might as well not show up for the audition. Just just like in the Berlin Philharmonic, if you walk in playing French bow, you won't get the job. And did you know it was the TSO was the ultimate goal, or did you ever think I want to 
play for Berlin Philharmonic or? Well, uh, sure, people would like to play in the LSO or Berlin or Konzergebau or something like that, but easier said than done. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, they're, it, they're brutal, brutal auditions. You know. But I, I presume that being in the TSO is, has a certain level of whatever. Like, Panache? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, well, it, it, well, for one thing, you wouldn't be able to even get the opportunity to audition in one of those big orchestras if you if you didn't have any orchestral experience. Right. Yeah. So, uh, but the, well, with the Toronto Symphony, if there was a bass opening, there might be 25 people that would apply, whereas I went down and played an audition for the Chicago Symphony, and there were th 300, oh. and they were all killer players so <laughs> what's the mindset when you applied not applied but when when you auditioned for the Chicago Symphony like I don't know where you were at that point in your career but do you go in there thinking I'm gonna get this or do you go in there thinking god there's 300 other people well um for uh, for that audition I I practiced uh, that stuff for a year. Wow. Yeah, and just and just uh, that was my focus, and and so you go into the audition. Uh, well, some auditions, when you're a student, you go and play the audition just for the experience of playing, because everybody has to deal with their nerves to figure out how the nerves affect you. Some some people take beta blockers. Um, just what's going to happen. I've seen many people uh, who are really fine players that, that that particular day their nerves just got the best of them. And that's it. Wow. So at what point in your career were you at when you... Had you you weren't at TSO at that point? Or? No, I was uh, I was in the opera and the ballet, and uh, uh, there were opportunities for me to join the TS, and and um, uh, I just sort of shied away from it because I was doing very well on the outside. You either play in the TS or you do all of the outside stuff. Meaning there were commercials and TV work. Yeah, and recordings and playing the other orchestra uh, playing in the other orchestra there were there were some people uh, who were uh, key players in the TS that actually left the TSO because they were losing so much money by not being on the outside tell me what the greatest thing you learned about the freelance gig like doing freelancing for a while what was the greatest thing you learned about that uh, the actual process of freelancing, yeah, uh, uh, and also as a, as a player, how it affected you. Well, um, when I was freelancing, I was I was practicing all the time because I could be called for anything, and usually, if it was a recording, um, you you had to be right on your game. I, I remember doing a recording where I walked into the studio and all that there was was a stool, a mic, and a music stand. Just me. 
and then I then I had to play this bass line for something. I think it was the Rankin family or something. Or, uh, and and that's a bit unnerving because the control room's there and all those people are just they're just listening to you. <laughs> <laughs> but you're hearing whatever they've recorded. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. There's a prelay, but 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 still, but and then. Uh, then I had a fantastic bass, and, and, uh, which I don't have anymore. But, uh, so it uh, sounded great. It was a perfect recording bass. It was clear and precise, and uh, it was great. How many basses do you have? Double bass? Yeah. One bass. One bass, three bows, which is two bows more than I usually... But I understand bows aren't cheap. Uh, well... Yeah, I play. Uh, I play on a modern instrument. Um, uh, I had a had a spectacular bass. It was made by Matteo Gofriller in Venice in 1730, and uh, it it was really wonderful. And and uh, uh, the pedigree was in dispute. Uh, there was an article that was written in Strad magazine, and. Uh, saying that it was made by somebody else and uh, I was made an offer I couldn't refuse so I sold it yeah but I was down at I was down at Heinel's uh, a couple of days ago to pick up a string and and, uh, they had three panormal bases and the cheapest one was $450,000 it's crazy Uh, it's nuts (laughs) and 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 bases uh, they're Prices are so much lower than mm-hmm. the other instruments. Uh, for a to buy a gofriller cello today would be in the millions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Yo-Yo Yo-Yo Ma plays on a gofriller, and and uh, well, luckily he's done well for himself. Yeah, yeah, but he's winding down. He's not. Uh, yeah, but yeah, it's a, it's a a weird concept to for for someone like me to see these musicians with instruments that are so ridiculously expensive. Yeah. And, and, and you know, they sound amazing, yeah. but still. Yeah. So tell me about the relationship you have with your bass. Oh, it's, it's, so, it's so personal. It's... it's uh, well, I, that, that instrument that I had, I, I loved it. Uh, but I, but I had sort of a strange cathartic moment. We were in in Vienna playing at the playing in the Musik Verein where the Vienna Phil right. plays, and uh, and it's arguably one of the best halls in the world. And and I had the Gefriller with me, and I was on stage, and I just pulled a sound. I went, oh man! So this is what they're talking about. The fact that we don't play in halls like that, and I had so much money wrapped up in this instrument, and 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 I was going in sort of a different direction with pork bellies and stuff like that, and we needed recording equipment, and and I was happy to. So I, um, all of these things started lining up, and I, and I, I said, okay, okay, but when you're used to that instrument and you sell it. For a good price, but you have to now get a new instrument. Yeah. 
how difficult was it to find the new instrument and make it your own? Well, I'm 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 playing on a modern bass, and uh, I'm I'm very good friends with Dave Young, the uh, jazz player who he and I played together for many years. He used to be a classical player. He was principal in Edmonton and Winnipeg, oh. and 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 we sat together in Hamilton and all that. We had a great time. But uh, he has lots of basses, and and I asked him if I could buy this bass from him, and he and he hummed and hawed and he said, "No, no, but why don't you just use it?" So, so for about five years, I I just played on that bass. So, so I actually didn't own a double bass for those five years, <laughs> and and in return, I. Um, uh, I was doing a lot of web design, so I so I uh, built his website and maintained it and, and all that in, in in exchange for using that base. And then finally, he he said, "Ah, well, yeah, I should just sell it to you." So, so I bought it. But but it's a great instrument. But it's not like the, the really killer instruments. Yeah. So, how long? <laughs> I mean, it must be difficult to give up that killer instrument. Well, yeah, but but I but I but I had I uh, uh, I was happy with that, uh, and uh, only only a couple of times as it was getting close to when I when I had to actually let it go, and then I'd be playing a piece, and I would say to my, "That's the last time I'm playing this piece on this bass." How much of it is? the feel of the instrument and how much of it is the sound of the instrument um, well the feel um, you can set up an instrument and, and have it so that they all basically kind of feel the same underneath it's how uh, you produce the sound with the old Italian instruments you have to find a way to produce the sound in a relaxed way because if you force them the bass just goes forget it you know and and uh, so learning to play with weight as opposed to force where with um other in uh, with other instruments maybe an english bass or uh, just sort of a different style of playing you can push them a little bit more or a german bass or uh, they're all different but the the old uh, italian instruments you have to find find that spot that you can nurture the, the sound and then once you figure that out then you can really you can really make something happen how long does it take to figure that out well, some people never figure it out. I don't think there are. Uh, when you hear really great players, they they uh, they understand the mechanics of of making a sound on those instruments, and and uh, it's a it's a deep, beautiful, warm sound, pr providing that that it's in the instrument to begin with. Right. So with this based it replace the other one yeah at what point did it become yours not not financially or physically whatever but what, the new when one you, yeah the new one when you started playing and when how long did it take you to get the sound that you wanted uh not all that long actually there were some there were some things about the new bass that i enjoyed more i could i could hear it under my ear better um, it was certainly healthier. Um, the instrument was only about 20 years old, or maybe 30 years old. 
and um, beautifully made. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how it sounds in 200 years. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Which is also another concept that's just so bizarre. Yeah. Right? Because these things last for you hundreds of years. Yeah, yeah. And changed in sound and everything. Yeah. Yeah, yeah the, well, there's a, there's a theory that, that uh, all of the great instruments like the Strads and the Guarneri's, they, they sound great because they were played by great players. So they, they, the, the instrument got used to vibrating in a certain way. That's one theory. Hmm. But, uh, um, That's interesting. It, do you play the electric bass anymore? I do. I, I'm. Uh, uh, I'd like to think when I, when I pack it in for the double bass that I'll that I'll spend more time on the electric bass. I've 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 acquired some instruments that I really like and and uh, they're they're just sitting there screaming out at me to play. <laughs> okay. So <laughs> tell me about how you wound up in the Pork Belly Future band and and then. Because as we said, it's it's kind of out of your comfort zone. Yeah. So how did that happen, and and what made you decide this is something you want you want to pursue? Well, uh, uh, Stuart Lawton, who uh, was an uh, was an excellent trumpet player, um, but he uh, well he still is a terrific player, but. He and I uh, got got to know each other when when we were playing in the ballet together. We were double dating ballet dancers. This is like a thousand years ago, right. and and uh, uh, we uh, we always talked about Paul Butterfield and all that stuff. And I didn't see him for a long time until till till I got uh, we were doing a rehearsal for this tour to Greece. And and it was it was CBC and uh, the trumpet section was over in the booth and and I and I hadn't seen Stuart for years and then and then he uh, he saw me and then he did the you know that sort of thing with the blues harmonica and then and he said great so we were on this tour and he said we should uh, we should form a blues band so uh, great so we he and I got together and then we realized we needed uh, more personnel. <laughs> So we so we contacted Paul Quarrington, mm -hmm. who um, uh, I knew reasonably well, but it it was his brother Joel who's who's a bass player, and uh, so then it was the three of us, and then uh, Paul used to play in this band Quarrington and Worthy. They had they had a number one hit for a couple of days, and uh, so. Marty played drums and 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 we just sort of got together and started playing cover tunes and then it just got to a point where I said, well, we've got to start writing. So Paul and Marty were the driving force in that direction. It just sort of was it, was there um, a goal with that band? Well, if if uh, you asked Stuart, bless his heart, he would say, "World domination." <laughs> <laughs> we weren't quite as optimistic, but but I, I presume you were. You are already in the TSO. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I had to uh, I had to juggle my timetable and and uh, take some time off when we went out on the road and stuff like that. But we made our first album and and. Uh, 
uh, I thought, boy, this is this is this is hard work and, and all that. And and uh, Dave Gray, you know Dave Gray, the guitar player, who's in Soul Stew. Uh, he was in Parachute Club, oh. and uh, and so he produced the record, and and um, he did a great job just pulling it all together. And we got Colin Linden to play a couple of uh, solos on it. And as soon as we heard that, I said, "Wow, this could be good." <laughs> you know? Okay, why did you think it was so hard? What was it? What made it so difficult compared to the freelance work that you did? Well, it was it was uh, completely different music and and uh, trying to come up with songs. Uh, there actually were songs that uh, Paul and Marty wrote, but mm-hmm. just making it happen. And, and there was that dream to, to do it, and we were having so much fun. And, and, uh, and then we started getting serious. We were making record. And then Richard Bell joined the band, and... Uh, that was that was huge for me. Uh, Richard and I became great pals, and and uh, I heard he was an amazing person. Unbelievable, unbelievable. He's he uh, the level of musicianship was was on the same par of you know any of the great classical players. Hmm. Yeah, it was terrific, and. Uh, I will never forget. We were we were playing up at the up at the Black Sheep up in Wakefield, Black Sheep or Black Swan, Black Sheep. Sheep yeah. yeah, and uh, so Richard's there, Marty's on drums, I'm on bass. Teddy Leonard was was uh, playing, and we were sitting there, and all of a sudden I realized we were in the pocket. I'd never felt being in the pocket before, you know and what? then and then I looked over at Marty, and he's going like, "Yikes, we're in the pocket!" And and then I looked over at Richard, and he he had this big smile on his face, and I was going like, "Oh man." Okay, so this is interesting because last night when I was watching the orchestra play, I wondered about that. If if you ever have that moment where you're just in the pocket or having this out of body experience because everything sounds and feels perfect. Yeah. Does that happen in an orchestra? Um, yes. Yeah. Uh, that, I think, is one of the, the big things about live performances. You don't know when it's going to happen, but when it happens... I, I presume it's... Maybe I'm wrong, but I presume it's more difficult to have that experience with 90 people piece orchestra versus five people on stage right yeah well it, it's it's more I think that the conductor has to let it happen uh, some some conductors want to have ultimate control uh, where sometimes you feel as though you're right on the edge of playing in the groove but the conductor doesn't want it to go that fast or, and then pulls it back and then it's like, okay, hmm. can't do anything about that. But if the, if the, uh, if the conductor lets it happen, then uh, take, take me, I'm yours. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And then when this happened in Wakefield, because yeah. um, the other thing I wonder about is when it's happening... Because this is a very mysterious concept to me. But yeah. when something like that happens, when, when you're just floating on air, the music is taking you places that you didn't think you could go to or whatever, 
Mm-hmm. Um, as soon as you realize that you're there, I wonder if you come out of that pocket. Or... Well, interesting that you should ask that because I felt like when we were in the pocket, it was almost impossible to get out of the pocket because we were just locked in there. Wow. And I thought, wow, this is great. This is great. And, and I think with really fantastic players, session players, they can, they can get into the pocket pretty quickly. Because yeah, uh, yeah, you, don't, you don't feel that, you don't get that when you're in the studio doing a freelance session for a commercial, right? Like this right. is about just executing and making sure the notes are fine and yeah, making yeah. it possible, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it... it, it hmm. What did that experience in that band teach you? Uh, I think the biggest thing that I, uh, uh, when I think back to then, is to learn how to listen, which I don't think that uh, uh, that I ever really did it that much in the orchestra. Wow. That that one has to listen to who you're playing with if if uh, there's something that's happening on the other side of the room and you and you have to lock in with that and and so many times. I don't think people really listen in the orchestra. They just, uh, that actually sounds a little cruel, but, but uh, it's uh, when everybody does listen and plays a phrase the same way and let, let the egos fall by the wayside and just say this is, this is the overall good. Play, play with everybody else. You're part of when you hear a great orchestra, they're all, they're all together. They're all in, they're all in a groove. When you hear the concertgebouw play, man. So this is an aside, but when you have an orchestra and you've been with them for thirty-one years, so there's a lot of people you would know. Yeah. But do you just kind of hang out with the bass players or the bass section, or like, <laughs> are there? Well, there are clubs. <laughs> I'm sure there must be. Yeah. But is the clubs automatically the same instrumentalists, or is it beyond that? Uh, well, usually it's the bass players, uh, uh, or low brass, or or we don't we don't have anything like oh well you're a violinist we don't talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> but they are different, aren't they? No, they they are different. They are different. Really? Yeah. Like yeah. each different instrument has different e- characters. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> uh, I think with with certainly with the bass players, the satisfaction of laying something down, where where it's a sonic foundation or a rhythmic foundation that drives the whole orchestra. Right. Uh, that's. That's certainly what turns my crank. And uh, when there's eight eight bass players on the stage playing as one, and the intonation is one, you can feel, you can just feel the whole pitch center just lock in. And when that happens, the amount of volume coming out is is staggering. That's interesting. You say that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I I can picture it based on what you just said. It's yeah. Yeah, it's it's those are the moments that one lives for being a well I do. Okay, yeah. so the fact that you've been there for 31 years. Did you ever at any point think you wanted to leave? Was ever was it ever difficult? 
because I always ask this to different musicians. Yeah. But I don't know if it's the same when you have something at, like the TSO that is well established and you have your gigs and well respected. Yeah. Yeah, there are times. It, it, um, sometimes when, when personnel changes or the conductor changes or you're thinking, oh, this again, you know. Right. Or um, when I was doing the web design, I I I, I thought uh, I was getting disenchanted with 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 the whole music thing and the Toronto went through uh, the TSO went through a financial hard times for a while so which that, is not that uncommon with uh, orchestras yeah, yeah. Uh, they're in they're in good shape now um, so I uh, I was interested in doing something different and and uh, I thought that I could I could leave being a musician but it but it became apparent that that really, whether I liked it or not, the thing I did the best was play the bass. Right. Yeah. So when when the band ended, the the Port Valley Future. Yeah. And um, is it Future or Futures? Futures. Futures. With an airport. <laughs> yeah. When that band ended, because that went through some difficult times with loss of band members. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Did you ever think about, and maybe you did, I, I don't know, but continuing another band or no well um i presume it's a, it was a very special circumstance with the people you played with as well. yeah it would well um richard died paul died mm-hmm. uh we we made an album after paul died and uh, uh yeah it just wasn't the same uh and and uh teddy leonard and i have sort of at times joked around with sort of getting together and i would love to get together with teddy we're great pals and and what a great talent what a great yeah. guitar player he is yeah yeah and and uh, uh so that would make me happy to just play with him and and uh yeah <laughs> <laughs> would you would you consider doing that? Like you said, you you were thinking about reinvestigating the the electric bass at one point. Well, I'm uh, I'm not closing the door on that, but but uh, uh, that would be really fun to play with him. Uh, I don't know what would happen uh, whether I could just keep it as fun. Uh, um, I think people tell me I'm pretty Type A, so so I have to, <laughs> yeah. Do you have an idea as how long you want to be with the orchestra? Well, I'm 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 almost sixty-seven, so uh, uh, there's there's a couple of people in the orchestra that are in their seventies. I think it it's uh, uh, I would I would like to keep going for a couple more years. Uh, we have a new music director coming in. I'd like to go on go on a tour with him and. Uh, see what happens but uh, it's getting harder uh, concentration well, eyesight hearing all that stuff yeah because that's the other thing is what always amazes me and I've had a couple opportunities to be on stage with an orchestra because we were filming something and to be in the middle of 
an orchestra while they're playing is something else. Yeah. The power behind it, certainly yeah. in certain moments, it's it's breathtaking. The ma- the passion you have for music, is it still the same? Is it bigger? Is it larger? Um, yes, it's, it's still there. Um, music, classical music, has become very personal for me. There are there are pieces that I can't play without starting to cry. Uh, and and it's just it just moves me so much. On the reverse of that, it, it's it's a job like anything else. If 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 you're playing school shows and you've done about ten of them, and you say, "Gee, when's this going to end?" <laughs> you know. But I do remember in grade nine going to see the TSO, and then yeah. it was. It was an event that I will never forget. It was at the Massiel. Mission accomplished. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Obviously, you felt that way at a young age. At some point, you thought, I want to be in the Toronto Symphony Orchestra. You achieved that goal, which is amazing. Was there a moment where you... And I know that you you played with them before you actually joined them a number of years, but was there a moment when you were on stage with the TSO that you thought, this is my dream. This is what I've been thinking about. Yeah, yeah. When 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 you're when you're playing something that's a fantastic piece of music, and and there's great players, and it's all coming together, and it's the it's it's the best job in the world, uh, and and we talk about it uh, after a concert. You go, wow, that was un- that was fantastic. That's why I play the bass. That's why. You know, it's um, all of the buttons, all of the green lights were on. You know. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Wow. Yeah, and and uh, and I and I feel very fortunate, and I want it, and I'd like to keep it going as long as I can. And I'm sure that I will know when it's time to right. walk away. Wow, it's been an amazing journey, I presume. Yeah, uh, when I think of with um, all of the people that I've been fortunate enough to play with and you know, Yo-Yo and um, Isaac Stern and Pavarotti and Domingo and, and um, Ella Fitzgerald and uh, Herbie Hancock and B.B. King. Wow. Uh, and the Scorpions. And the Scorpions, yeah. <laughs> I know. Couldn't believe that. Can you explain that? Well, because that, that kind of jumps out at me. But was it yeah. was it like wind of change? Is that what? Um, uh, that was just a record date that I was that I was called to do, and and it was just um, um, Dick Arman booked the gig, the, the cellist in Lighthouse. And so and, this was in Toronto. Yeah, okay. yeah, and and we just walked in to Manta, and and uh, they put up the music, and um, I didn't know whether they said that it was for the Scorpions. I said, Scorpions, that's a rock band, isn't it? <laughs> and, and so you don't know, like before you walk in? <laughs> no, no, you just walk in, right? And 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 uh, and we played for a long time. The uh, on. on the album is um, Animal Magnetism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so, and, and so we just 
recorded this thing, a lot of music. They they only used uh, uh, about a minute of 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 about ten minutes of stuff that we recorded, and 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 it was just it it was just a gig, you know. We mm-hmm. played played the gig and then got paid. But strangely enough, about a about a year ago, I got a residual check for that album that was huge like, like, like right after out of all these years yeah not, you've never gotten anything else well no not from that album I, I mean that was like in the 80s right? yeah yeah well i was paid right yeah, at the yeah, time for sure and then and then it was just well one of those things and and uh, you used to get these things from the special payments fund every year from right. LA and and you go oh did I play on that I guess I did you know <laughs> and all that stuff and and then all of a sudden I say wow great keep it coming <laughs> yeah. um, I know you have a gig tonight so oh, no, I, I really yeah. appreciate you doing this oh, my I final did. question tell me what music has given you given uh, me. Well, I have a love of music, mm-hmm. and it's and it's uh, it, it's given me everything, I guess. Uh, just my love of life, my my passion for something, and uh, that that passion has gone into other things. Uh, but I've, uh, yeah, I could drop dead today and I would think that I've had a fantastic life you know and it's all and it's all because of just that environment and playing with fantastic musicians and playing wonderful music and sure there's been down stuff but but, Mm -hmm. uh, it's been great and and uh, I've been very fortunate to uh, have done it for a long time and made a living at it and I guess people liked what I did so they kept hiring me, which is great. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> well, thank you for doing this. This is a real thrill. I, I ambushed you a couple of weeks ago to see if you would do oh, this. Oh, no, no. And, this, and is, were... um, this has been really enjoyable. Yeah. Well, thank yeah. you for doing this. Well, I'm thrilled. Yeah, thank you. Thank you.